Welcome listeners. Today's episode is a little deviation from the norm. This podcast isn't a how-to guide. It's more of an exploration and deconstruction of the world of escorting. That said, I think topics related to assisting escorts in this industry should also be presented in the spirit of advocacy for all its workers. Getting access to suitable resources to conduct business should be included. My guest today is a sex worker allied CPA who's taken an interest in working with and advocating for this industry in a professional capacity. He took it upon himself to construct most of the content for this episode and offers insightful information for escorts curious about how to go about their finances in this industry. He's incredibly well-read and up-to-date in a lot of things I've myself wondered about. We don't go into specific detail a number of things in this episode, but if you've been looking for a professional accountant who is knowledgeable and reliable, he is your guy. I hope everyone enjoys my informative discussion about financial planning considerations for escorts with Fred from Escort CPA. There's a lot of people who are trying things that they've never tried before. Sex! Why do you think people don't see it as work? I don't know. I think there's just too much stigma. What do you mean we can't just go tell people? The vast uh, complexity of human sexuality. The escort. Deconstructed. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Fred. Thank you. I'm very happy that you wanted to be part of this episode today and actually created most of it. I did little to no legwork for this. So thank you very much. We are going to discuss financial planning for everyone. My podcast isn't really a how-to, but I figured this would be very valuable information for all the other escorts out there. I myself kind of had trouble finding information specific to sex workers and didn't really know where to look. And uh, Fred kind of just presented himself to me over time, and now I just want to share what I've learned with all of you. So since the goal of this podcast is to humanize all the parties involved with the sex work industry... um, The professional conversation will include finding out about each guest's personal life, just like the other episodes. I think finding out about how a professional is interested in this industry and why they want to work with sex workers is very interesting and of great value. I mean, could you imagine getting this much information about the lawyer you want to work with? Finding out someone's motivations for getting involved in a particular sector makes all the difference when considering who to work with. So, tell me about yourself. Well, I was raised in a suburb here in Toronto and I consider Toronto my hometown. Hmm. I'm an avid hockey player, I'm in my 50s, and I am a licensed CPA in the US. And while I presently live abroad, I do love to come home to Toronto as much as I can. Oh yeah, what draws you back every time? A sense of being home. A sense of being home. Uh, Well, I mean, how long have you been involved with working with people in the sex industry? Uh, Personally or professionally? (laughs) I mean, both, uh, however that came about. Uh, It's just been a short time. How did you decide to want to work with us? You know, as an entrepreneur, I admire people who work in this industry because it takes a lot of guts, ingenuity, personal vulnerability, risk-taking, and business acumen to be successful. On a personal level, I've always admired strong people who live as they believe despite the personal cost. I've always felt it's a better way to live, to be more uh, adjusted to life than people who have secret dreams and hopes and never uh, live them out. Suffering because you're living your dream is not the worst pain in the world. The worst pain is to have a dream and not to live it. And I would also have to say that the sex positive people I've met over the years are some of the kindest, most likable people I've ever known. I was uh, naturally drawn to them. There is a saying, surround yourself with people who you want to be like. That just happens to be sex workers in some way. So it seemed like a natural place Mm. for me 
to start to offer my skills and abilities as a financial planner. And, you know, finally, after a lot of years of liberalization of values uh, really around the world, um, it's been really exhilarating to watch. It seems like uh, now there's kind of a dark cloud um, and, and a push to, to return to more conservative values. And, and I appreciate the, the pressure that's on the industry. And um, I'd like to offer my services in a way to allow sex workers not to feel so alone and uh, to give them one less thing to worry about, uh, and that is their finances. Most definitely. I mean, it's a huge part of it. And knowing how to manage those makes a huge difference. Absolutely. Do you see any parallels between the world of escorting and the world of CPA? Um, in my <laughs> opinion, being a CPA does have a lot of similarities with certain styles of escorting. Hmm. You know, finances like sex are a subject that people try to overblow to be impressive. Oh, definitely. Everyone wants others to think that what they have is more impress impressive than it realistically is. And so when you go to your CPA, you get naked financially, <laughs> and they see you as you really are. And the CPA has to be very appreciative of the vulnerability that brought people into that relationship. That's very true. And you have to create a safe place that's uh, gentle, sensitive, respectful, non-judgmental. And you have to be careful while you're working together not to break the trust. You have to hold everything in a strict confidence. And, you know, uh, you take what they're working with, and you show them how they get what they want. Uh, many clients, after coming to me and going through those initial feelings of vulnerability, uh, have a professional experience that's very positive, and they choose to work with me over the years. And it's been very rewarding to me personally to see a person's finances blossom, to see their life goals being accomplished. You know, I get to help people take dream vacations, buy houses, start businesses, go back to college, start families, get divorced, change careers, make investments, deal with aging parents, and ultimately retire on their own terms. Pretty much I see people through the whole gamut of the thing we call life. And for this reason, I think it's a pretty cool job. I mean, I had no idea you got to do all of that. You sound like a superhero. Um, so you decided to work with uh, sex workers over time after meeting some, so they swayed your mind. Did you decide to tell any of your coworkers or anyone that you decided to start working with sex workers, or did you kind of keep that to yourself? Was that part of the privacy, or do you think that you're kind of an advocate telling other people they should check out working with sex workers too because for some reason they're stigmatized, but they also need professional help? Well, I've kept it myself because I'm not really sure how the community uh, would react uh, That's fair. To, to that knowledge. And uh, it's, it's hard to talk to others and recommend something when you're not sure if they're really of the right mind to do that. But you got to give them the opportunity, though. You never know. Well, I think there is, you know, you have conversations with people and you get a sense for that. And certainly uh, if, I, if I bumped into a lawyer or whatever that, that I came to the conclusion that they were open-minded and, and able to do that, I would recommend it. But, you know, when you, when you make a recommendation, your own personal credentials are kind of at stake. You don't want to send right. somebody to a, to a relationship that uh, isn't going to work out in, in a positive way for everybody involved. So I'm, I'm a little hesitant uh, about making referrals, um, and I don't have a, a lot of people that I work with uh, uh, as far as uh, sharing referrals with. Makes sense. That's kind of why I'm shouting you out on this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I do sometimes find people who have uh, very uh, narrow views. And oh, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> and uh, 
and, and I try to engage them with questions to challenge their beliefs because I think many of the beliefs that we have are irrational and maybe have just have never been questioned. Oh, that is very wise. And and what I found is, uh, you know, you can get into an uh, an out and out debate with somebody and people won't change their minds as a result of that. But sometimes just asking a question, planting a seed of doubt. Um, can be very beneficial. And the other thing for me that's been really beneficial is uh, having a relationship with somebody um, who's uh, maybe in a, in a stigmatized uh, industry or race or, or group. Uh, it, once you have that personal relationship, it puts a face on all of the, the negative things that you've heard and, and really turns that around for, for you. Um, and I think that's, it's important for, for all of us to come out in, at the right time, at the right place, because ultimately, it's not going to be uh, an article or a, or a uh, a law or whatever that's going to change our society. It's going to be when knowing someone doing it. Yeah, when your sister, your mother, your brother, your uncle, your your niece, when you know when they're involved at a certain level, and uh, these are people you love and respect, um, then uh, that love and respect carries over into your. Um, acknowledgement of what they're doing in the industry would you say you started out in life being okay with sex work and sex workers or you grew to that yourself I think I've always been a little bit uh, liberal in my views and I, I was raised in a very conservative um, uh, culture uh, went to parochial school and uh, that culture is very um homophobic and very uh, narrow in its views. Traditional. Traditional. I don't think I ever really bought off on those values. But at the same time, uh, when all of your friends, business associates, whatever, are connected in, in that culture, it's sometimes easier just to go along with it and, and not to stand up and, you know, be the, be the black sheep. Until you're and older, the, until and you're then you can help work with these people in a new ex capacity. Exactly. And you have a lot less to, to, to risk and gamble on, and you can take the heat, and uh, it, it makes a difference. Wouldn't Couldn't agree more. I had to wait till I was a full-blown adult to move here alone and do this on my own. There you go. <laughs> okay, well, what stood out most to you um, about people working in this industry you never considered before now that you know sex workers? I think how isolated it is and how secretive it is, it's very difficult to, to network and uh, to, to build relationships. Everybody's very distrustful. Yeah, you never, like you said, you never know or you get an idea and then maybe you don't share and it takes a long time to find people open enough. Right. Ugh, and I, I've got to ask, uh, you told me a little bit about your background, but tell me a little bit more about your childhood. Okay, well, I can uh, give you an idea of the conservatism that I was raised in. Uh, my parents always, you know, bought me boxer shorts to wear. And I oh, found, no, they did <laughs> I found them uncomfortable <laughs> in my early teenage years, and I experimented with uh, bikini briefs, and I found them to me a lot to my liking. Mm. Now, I was still living at home, and my father, you know, he saw the bikini briefs in the laundry, and he accosted me one day, attacked me for the sin of, of wearing women's underwear, and int intimated that maybe I was gay. Um, so whether I was uh, at private school or at home, there was a lot of homophobic, you know, rhetoric, and while I never questioned my own sexuality, um, I abandoned uh, some career choices that I might have otherwise made because uh, of the homophobic environment I was in. And Being accosted. Yeah, and I regret that today. I mean, I think my career would have been a lot different. But uh, like I said, when you're a young person and this is everything you know, even though you might think there's something else out there, um, it's just easier to sometimes to go with the flow uh, until you get to a point in your life where you say, you know, no. 
So now you've just found a way to make your career kind of mesh into all that fun stuff you once upon a time tried to pursue. I, I'm trying to do that. I have some ladies' underwear here in case you... <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I think my underwear looks enough like ladies for me. I'm not... Uh, I mean, uh, you just wanted some security. I get it. I mean, boxers kind of seems like it's going to... Actually, I don't know. I've never worn men's boxers around for a day. Well, if you want to get technical, it was the seam that bothered me. Oh, the seam. I don't know. Clothing is clothing, isn't it? Yeah. All right. So what made you want to come on the show and do an episode with me about financial planning, of which you created most of the questions? Thank you very much. Well, over the years, I've watched uh, and read uh, a lot about the industry, and I've realized that many people... Uh, needed uh, help with their financial and business aspects, um, but they were uncomfortable working with uh, civilians uh, due to the social stigma. And I've even heard stories of accountants who, you know, would preach hell to somebody, or uh, worse than that, I think, is uh, soliciting favors. And so Definitely. Uh, this led me to believe there's really a good opportunity for someone who's willing to come out and take a professional position uh, to make a, a, a safe environment uh, for safe workers, and I'm very committed uh, to creating and maintaining professional boundaries with all my clients. Uh, to kind of put that in blunt terms, uh, I have a fee, and um, I don't barter, and there's no tip for tag. I mean, you have it f for your other clients, so why would you all of a sudden start doing that? Exactly. doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, <laughs> uh, and, and so that's my professional ethic when you deal with me. I mean, I can vouch for that, so. Well, thank you. <laughs> Uh, what exciting new things are you working on at the moment? Well, I'm um, part owner in a software company that's doing uh, software development on blockchain. Cool. And um, I'm continuing to uh, develop uh, my uh, interests in, in the uh, sex work and sex industry. And You've uh, done a lot of research. He sends me a lot of articles of things I've never even seen before, but very much appreciate. Well, thank you. My history a little bit, you know, I, I've worked for 20 years or more as a CPA, and I, I have clients um, on two continents. I work with all the other industries as well. Um, so this is uh, sort of a new venture for me, but yet uh, the tax laws and much of the process we need to go through to be successful uh, applies to this industry as it does to any other industry. Yeah, exactly. Just a small business like any other. Yeah. Well, all right, then. Let's just start, dive right into it. What is financial planning? I think it's self-care in money terms. It's about loving yourself enough to make sure that you can meet your own needs and at the same time achieve your dreams. Good financial planning encompasses your entire life in all of its phases. Definitely. Controls a lot of it. <laughs> and you have to think about what risks and threats might come up to achieving your goals. You know, I think everybody identifies with a form of self-love that takes them on a shopping spree or motivates them to get a manicure or buy that new Mercedes. Uh, many times our incidences of this kind of self-love come, you know, after a particularly stressful event or maybe it's a celebration of an achievement. But the kind of financial planning and the self-love that I'm talking about here is a more disciplined self-love that takes a, uh, a long-term view of, of your whole life and of your whole career. That one that's going to support you through a lifetime. That's just you. That's just your self-care. Exactly. Invest in your self-care. Well, exactly. where do we start with this self-care journey? Well, I think there are six steps to an effective financial plan. Oh, six steps? Yep. So I think the first one, you want to try and figure out, you know, where you want to be in, in 5, 10, or 15, or 20 years. And then I think you want to determine an estimate as best you can of what it's going to cost to get there in financial terms. Hmm. 
And then I think the next thing you want to do, and we're going to, by the way, we'll come back to these and visit each one in a little more detail. So I'm just going to throw these out and then come back through the list. Um, Look at your current and expected income uh, and determine how you want to arrange your expenses and income to achieve your goals. And arranging expenses and income generally involves, number one, saving money from your monthly income, number two, investing to build wealth, and number three, and I think this is a big one in our society, is being really wise with your credit. Um, Taxes tend to be a very important uh, or a very large expense for self-employed individuals, and I found that it can run 50% or more. And so it's really important to consider tax planning opportunities as you look at how am I going to pay for this? Well, if you're paying too much tax or more than you need to pay, um, the, the tax savings alone can generate a significant savings. And then I think we talked about assessing risk that might affect your goals and figure out how to mitigate those. And then finally, and I think this is really important, is to plan for the unthinkable, to have a plan for emergencies, uh, inability to work, death, disability, those kind of things. Ooh, boy, that's a lot. I mean, yeah, you're, we're going to have to okay, get your papers out, ladies. <laughs> we're going to be working on this now. Um, I think if you take a time to actually try to work on this right now, you might actually find a lot of benefits or places to find resources next. So I've invested my time. You should invest yours too. All right, let's hear step one. All right, so the first step I think that I would recommend is to sit down and and set some exciting goals. You know, as we get deeper into the process, there's going to be some boring stuff and some difficult choices you're going to have to make. And it's going to be those um, exciting goals that you've set for yourself that are going to help drive you through the process. And so um, pick goals that are motivating and meaningful. Uh, You really want to be clear about your goals, and you want to pick some specific time periods when you'd like to see those goals achieved. And some of the goals you also need to pick, in addition to being these big and exciting goals, are just some utility goals, like because we live in a material world and things like food and housing and medical care all cost money. And at some point, you may not be able to earn what you're earning today, or you may not be able to work at all, or you may not want to work. So when that time comes, how will those things be paid for? So that's the more practical side of, of, setting, de- of, of setting goals. Okay, so number one, set the goals. Exactly. Okay. And then I think the next thing we want to do is figure out what it will cost to achieve that, those this goals. This is step two. Yes. Okay. So let's say you want to spend three weeks in Europe before you're age 35. You'll want to um, figure out how much it's going to cost and put that on a timeline. So, for example, three weeks in Europe, maybe it's $12,000. And then let's say after that you want to go live in your own home. So what's it going to cost for a down payment? What's it going to cost to buy a home? And then you think about after you retire, um, you might want to continue to live in that home and you're going to need someone to come in and do the gardening and lawn care and maybe some upkeep for you. Um, let's just say that's $1,000 a month and you're going to live in your home for 15 or 20 years after you quit working. That would be 12000 a year and the 15 years times 12000 you can do the math. Um, that's how many, how many dollars you'd have to have saved by that point in your life. So Sienna, what are some of the goals that you have for, for your life, and have you put a price tag on those Oh, goals? deer in headlights over here. <laughs> I said I would prepare for this, but I did not. Uh, plans and goals for my life. Yeah, definitely to own a home. Um, I definitely want to do a lot of traveling. And no, I mean, I haven't put a price tag on that. But sometimes I have tried to, but it does seem like the cost fluctuates so much. And what I predicted my cost in two years, it actually costs way more. And then I get depressed and I stop. It's not very responsible, I know. <laughs> I hear you. And I think there's a, there's a couple of points there. I think uh, number one is that uh, you can't allow that to get you off first base. 
I can't just stop trying. No, you, you, <laughs> even if you miss the target slightly, it's better to have shot at the target than it is to sit there and say, I can't reach the target. So that, and I think the second piece of that is that there's magic that happens to your money when it's invested. And that's something we call compound earnings. And here's how it works. Let's say that you invest $1,000 a year when you're 20 until you're 60. So that's 40 years. And you earn 5% profit every year on that $1,000. Now, when you're 60 years old, how much money will you have? Well, if you take 1000 a year for 40 years, you might think that's $40,000. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, because of compound interest, it's $126,800. And this is what makes investing over the long time so worthwhile. It's the magic of compound earnings. Oof, okay, so now I have an idea of what I want for my life, and I've understood that panicking and stopping trying is not the right answer. What do I do to make this a reality? All right, step three involves creating a surplus of funds on a monthly basis and investing the surplus. Many times the use of credit becomes a part of the conversation because it's intimately tied to uh, our monthly cash flow. So we'll talk a little bit about credit. And then finally, um, some of us may have the opportunity, instead of reducing expenses, but to increase income. And that might be a more attractive option when we look at trying to uh, create surplus funds on a monthly basis. Oof. Have you thought about that? What's more important to you in achieving your goals? Would you want to increase your income or would you want to control your expenses? I feel I feel like that is a trick question because don't you need to do both? I mean, obviously, if you don't control your expenses and just spend everything, you have nothing left. But if I don't increase my income, then I'll be working forever at the same rate. So it's, it's got to be both. Did I answer right? <laughs> It's your answer. <laughs> no. it's, oh, there's no right answer. Oh, there's my no God. Right answer. No, it's Are no right answer. Me? It's just, you know, some people have a preference for one. And some people have the ability. I mean, if you're already tapped out uh, on you, what you can generate for income, then it may be more difficult. Okay, well, the thing about this industry is, like, you have no idea what the market is going to be every month. You have no idea. Sometimes there's trends that have nothing to do with anything. It's right. very all over the place. It's very hard to try to make sure you work a certain number of hours in a month. Yeah, income targets. Oof. I don't... I mean, yeah. I just uh, try to take as many bookings with the right people, given the time I have. Um, I don't overwork myself, and yeah, I don't know. Okay. Huh? Well, as we look at generating that monthly surplus, I think one of the first things you want to do is start tracking uh, on a sheet of paper, on a spreadsheet, or there's uh, web-based programs you can use to record you know, where your money goes every month. Most people are surprised when they actually sit down after a couple months of tracking it where the money actually went. And if you don't do this, I guarantee you, you're not going to know where the money went. Right. And we say this, but like actually try it for one month and you'll never go back. Right. And so now you know where your money's being spent. You can, you can create the priorities of what you want to spend it on and you can adjust those expenses um, to allow a surplus to be created um, from your monthly income. Uh, Sienna, do you know where you want to spend your money? Mm, um, on that self-care we were talking about. <laughs> All right. Where I want to spend my money. Um, I think I save a lot of it, but yeah, I'm definitely not investing it, uh, honestly, in mm, like any way at all right now. I've okay. been meaning to, hence why you're here, get on that. <laughs> all right. Are you happy with the way you spend your money, though? I mean, yeah, the way I spend it, definitely. I'm not a consumer, which is my happy place. So I just, yeah, don't spend most of it unless it's food or rent. Okay. One of the things we're going to talk about in addition to the compound interest is how that plays out in your overall plan. And the idea here is if uh, you start saving now, uh, let's say when you're 21 and you invest 10% of your income 
uh, by the age of 65, you can withdraw from your, from your investments an amount equal to 60% of your annual income for the rest of your life, and you'd never run what out of money. What is the rest of your life? If well, everybody, you, there's, you know, life expectancy tables that are out there. Life oh, insurance. what's my life expectancy? Do you also know that? Well, there's tables I could look it up, and it's only a probabilistic approach. But I would say most people are going to live somewhere between 85 and 90 is probably what is typical. Okay, I'll um, agree with that. Yeah. So, but the idea is if you start at age 21, you can have 60% of your income at age 65 for as long as you live. But if you start at age 51, so that's like 30 years later, you're going to have to invest 50% of your income to get to the same that point. Quite a bit more. And most people find that's not affordable. So the, the sooner you start the uphill climb, the younger you are when you start, the easier it's going to be to get where you need to be. So you're saying no matter your income, just 10% of it when you're 21? That's correct. Now, and that may not be acceptable because maybe at 10% of your current income, you can't... Even you live can't, right now. You can't afford... Well, it's actually, can I live on 60% of my income? And let me, let me right. back up and say where I got that number. Typically, financial planners will say you need to replace somewhere between 60 and 80% of your, of your income in retirement in order to stay reti- to stay in retirement. And that's on the assumption that if you're not working, you don't need a new car, you don't need as many fancy clothes, you won't have uh, you know, uh, other expenses related to being uh, child-rearing and having a family. You're, you're going to be uh, living a much more sedate lifestyle that will reduce your expenses. That's true. Um, Except for those grandkids, you're going to be giving birthday cards too. There you go. And the other thing about that 60% is, you know, I'm not throwing in any federal or, or governmental type um, support. So if you've been a part of the tax system your whole life, there is going to be a pension that right. comes from right. you know, Canada true. or the United States that's going to be helping out a little bit. But you know that's, a, that's not something I would c- caution people like that they should re- rely on because those amounts that are paid are subject to political uh, discretion. Hmm. And uh, you may find if the government needs to balance the budget – you know, there won't comes be a, at your cost. Exactly. And when you're 68 or 70 years old, uh, it's really not what you want to see is your rent and food going up and your social, your social security or your Canadian pension check isn't keeping up with those costs. So start saving. Yeah, there you go. Start saving. So the next piece is uh, we've rearranged our finances and, and we've reduced our expenses on a monthly basis. We know where those reductions are going to occur. And now what we need to do is take that extra money that we have every month and we're going to invest it. And that's a really broad subject and, yeah, one, and, and one that probably uh, needs its own podcast. Uh, but I, I can kind of give you a quick kind of what the issues are in investing. Uh, and that is, you know, what's a good return? And somebody says, well, I, you know, 15% or 8% or 3%. And that's often balanced by what's risky because the higher return investments typically have greater risk. And the finance theory... Uh, tends to argue that uh, all there is only one true uh, yield on all investments, and let's just say that's like three percent or five percent. And if you're able to get ten percent, it's only a short-term uh, rate because at some point you're going to lose your a part of your investment that's going to bring your yield back down to that kind of normal five percent level. Hmm. Um, and there is some truth to that. Um, there is also, you know, some people who manage to beat the system. But uh, it is important to consider what level of risk you're willing to take and how aggressive you want to be in managing your investment portfolio. And I think the last question is, who do you trust uh, with your money? And uh, 
like I said, we can't really get into all those details on this podcast, but um, maybe a future podcast we can talk about. On investing. who to trust? I mean, yes. I don't even know if I'm qualified for that. Well, I'm talking about like if you were like most people will do their investments through some type of professional mm. uh, organization. So uh, do you trust a financial planner? Do you trust a stockbroker? Well, I think their intentions are good, but there I mean. are. But the other thing to consider is that their commission based on on transactions. So if you make an investment in stocks with a stockbroker, they get paid once. And if you hold the stock for 20 years, they got paid once 20 years ago and they have sales quotas and budgets to meet every month and they have a family to feed too. So there is a tremendous amount of pressure on commission-based financial planners to encourage you to move your investments around so they can get an, an, an additional commission. Right. And then there's also the personal aspect of it. You know, I just, I know, I know somebody. Do I trust them? Do I feel good about that relationship? Um, that's more than just the structure of the relationship. Um, so most listeners, if you're, you know, you're self-employed. And so when we get down to the ta- to time we talk about taxes, we can also talk about some potential uh, to save a little money there by talking about whether it's advisable to form your own corporation and hire yourself to work for the company. Um, my kind of line in the sand is if your income is over 100000 then forming your own company and employing yourself is, is a better alternative and will, will allow you to, to uh, increase your investment opportunities because employees have different investment opportunities than self-employed people. And if you can make an investment as an employee in a plan, it'll be a tax-deferred plan, which means that the earnings of the plan are not taxed until you take them out. And so you can continue to invest dollars that otherwise would have been paid off, skimmed off in taxes, and this will allow you to create a, a larger asset base. The downside of that is that there are restrictive rules about when and how you can take the money out. There may be penalties for doing it. So you have to read the fine print and be very you know, aware of what you're doing in terms of limiting future flexibility by accepting uh, a tax-deferred plan. The other thing you can do, whether you're employed uh, or, or not, is you can uh, split up your investments uh, between tax-deferred and taxable, and you can maintain some flexibility that way. Uh, we talked earlier in the podcast about passive income. And uh, money that you earn from your labor is typically called earned income, and it's subject to higher tax rates than money that you earn by investing, which we call passive income. And so uh, one of the cool things, as we're saving money and investing money, if we are paying tax on our investments, what we're going to find is that the rate of tax you're paying, the percent, is going to be lower for those investments. And so as your portfolio grows, 100000 200000 500000 uh, you know, 500000 at, at 5%, is uh, a, a, a lot of money, and you're, you're, you're not paying the same tax rate that you would if you had to actually go out and earn that um, by bookings. Right. And uh, I was going to say, you know, that's the secret of the super rich. I think most of, rich, most of the super wealthy people do not have an income, an earned income, and they live off their passive income. They're just home at night sleeping to making money. Exactly. I would like to do that. Exactly. Let's make that in my future. All right. <laughs> Then we need, to, we need to look at some really good investments Okay, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> so, and then the last thing that we really have to talk about when we talk about freeing up money on a monthly basis is to look at your, cre- you know, your credit and what you're doing with your credit. Credit card debt is ridiculously expensive. So even if you have good credit and you have credit cards that you're living on, um, the average person has about $7,000 in credit card debt. And at 14% interest, it's going to take you 300 months to pay that off. A good rule of thumb to kind of control, you know, how you, how you acquire debt is to only take on debt 
for long life assets. So don't take on debt to buy groceries. Don't take on debt to to um, go out to eat. But if you want to say buy a, an investment property like a piece of real estate that you're going to rent out, then what you're going to do is take out a mortgage on that, and then the rent that you charge to the tenants is going to pay the mortgage. And so those kind of debts are really not a problem for you right. like it is when you have debt that's actually taking from your monthly paycheck. There are some great books on the internet uh, as it relates to the sex industry on how to increase your income. Yeah. And that's kind of oh, you've got you've read them and you've told me about them. There you go. There you go. So <laughs> I want to say, though, that I don't think that escorting is necessarily a full time job for most people. And I think that lots of people get themselves into a situation that's undesirable because they put all their eggs in this basket. And you really need to not only be relying on one source of income. And I think that most adults live like this. And just assuming that escorting is going to fix all your problems financially is it's a scary game to play, and I don't think it's wise. I would agree with that. Diversification is always a good thing, and investing in yourself. Yeah. I mean, uh, do you it, only do one thing in life right no, now? No, absolutely not. How many? How many things do you do? <laughs> I don't even want How to many? count them. <laughs> I don't know. I got, I got 10 jobs at least, you know. <laughs> See? It's the way it Hard is. worker. There you go. Yeah. You know, there's a great book uh, talking about how the rich live and they live off passive income. Right. It's a really good book, which I would recommend for anybody to read. And it's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it's by Robert Kiyosaki. I think which, I've heard of this. Yeah, he goes around and does seminars. And I've never been to one of his seminars, but I read his book and I love his book. And he, in the book, he contrasts, he had two fathers because there was a divorce there. And one of his fathers was like a college professor, lived on a paycheck uh, salary. And the other father was an investor, a speculator, and did wheeling and dealing. And he said his, his poor dad stayed poor all his life because he never got beyond his salary while his, his uh, wheeling and dealing dad uh, managed his money differently and was able to um, acquire a significant amount of wealth. And uh, his philosophy and his kind of summation of that is that you should invest your salary in your investments and use your salary to increase your wealth, and then you should live off your wealth. And as soon as you can get to that point in your life, now you're living like the rich, and you're going to be at a point where if you don't work today, it's not going to affect you. He tells the story as a perfect example of how his wife approached him early in the marriage, and she wanted a new Mercedes. The rich dad or the poor dad? Uh, oh, this, this the, was Robert the child. Kiyos this oh, is Robert gotcha. Kiyosaki after he was raised. And gotcha. He, and as he was writing the book, he said, my wife came to me after I got married, and he said she wanted a new Mercedes. And he had a choice. He could go buy the Mercedes, and then in five to ten years, that Mercedes would be worth nothing, and he'd have to come up with another $100,000 to buy another Mercedes. So instead of doing that, Cars he said to her— a bad investment. Yeah. So what he told her is, he said, I want you to invest, like, some money. And when the rent income from that investment is enough to make the monthly payment on a Mercedes— then you can have your Mercedes. And she took his advice and she went out and got an apartment building and she worked on fixing it up and she got the rents raised and did all those things that people do. And in the end, she had a monthly income that was enough to make the payment on a Mercedes. And so she leased a Mercedes for you know three years, five years, whatever it was, made the payment, got to drive it. Now at the end of those, uh, that lease term, when that Mercedes went back to the dealer, that income from that apartment complex continued to flow. And they could either get another brand new Mercedes or they could take the money and take a trip or they could buy another investment or do whatever they wanted to. Um, what would have happened if he'd have given her 100000 and she'd have just spent it on the Mercedes? In 10 years, they'd have she nothing. She would have not learned how to fish, but just how to eat a fish. There you go. Excellent, excellent analogy. <laughs> So anyway, that's a wonderful book. Um, and kind of wrap up this section of, uh, of the conversation, I think what we're saying is that you have to find a way to spend less than you earn. 
And when you took it some rules of thumb, maybe of what you can spend based on what you're earning, I think uh, really, you know, 30 to 50% of your gross income, um, if you're self-employed, needs to be set aside for taxes. Mm -hmm. And And then it's a happy surprise if you get to pay less taxes, but don't put yourself in a position to not have enough. No, the government is not a friendly creditor. (laughs) You do not want to... She's listening. You do not... Well, you don't want to owe them money because that... Yeah. Um, Now, it's true, you know, that... 36% of North Americans don't have any money left at the end of the month. And 19% of of North Americans spend more than they earn. And they use debt to make up the difference. But you've heard this podcast and you're going to make a resolution. You're going to live smarter and you're going to live differently. So Sienna, you know, using you as an example, have you been able to control expenses so that there is money left over at the end of the month? And if so, what's worked? And if not, what are you going to try? Mm, yes, I can say there's always been money left over at the end of the month. I don't know. Maybe I've just always been a frugal person. I've always had a distaste for spending money and being a sheeple. So, yeah, that that's not been an issue. But like I said, I haven't been in any way, even keeping up with inflation, like not investing it. But I'm aware of this and working on it. So Good. I guess that's step one. That's like step one, not even step one B, but step one A is completed. That's awesome. I think <laughs> the first, you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So, you know, recognizing where you are and, and setting some goals and figuring out where you're going to yeah, go. Yeah, and I mean, it's very embarrassing to admit to everyone listening that I have done no financial planning. But I mean, I hopefully someone will identify with that and not be afraid either because I'm going to try to start even though I have no idea. And you can too. And I appreciate your vulnerability in saying that. But, <laughs> you know, if you don't have somebody in your life, it's kind of a way of living and a way of thinking. If you don't have a mentor or someone to come into your yeah, life. anyone that's like, pay attention to this right yeah, now. You, you could go through your whole life and never address it until it's too late. So You will at some point sit down and work on it. And it's just, do you want it to be in 20 years when you'll be ashamed of yourself? Or do you want it to be today? Right. Or when you're unable to do anything. You're on the train and the train's moving and you can't stop the train. Well, or get we're all the train. already on the train. There you go. Yep. So we talked earlier about, you know, uh, trying to, uh, uh, the tax rate being maybe 30 to 50%, depending on how much you make. Uh, And so I want to talk a little bit about taxes, because that's a really good way to uh, free up some monthly income. So taxes is step four. I think step four will be taxes. Okay. And, uh, you know, first of all, let me say this. You know, the listeners know this is a cash business, and it's like an easy choice. And it's an easy choice to like just skip paying your taxes. I know a lot of women that don't do this full time and ergo never pay any taxes on their earnings. But here's the reality the penalty for not paying taxes is harsher than the penalty for paying the tax on the money you do make. And there's no statute of limitations if you don't file a tax return. Dun, dun, dun. So basically, you know, you could be 50 years old and your whole life and everything you've earned is up for grabs because you haven't filed a tax, ever filed a tax return. And I know people in this industry are a little hesitant about filing their taxes. But I I will say this, historically, the revenue departments of Canada and the United States don't enforce other laws. That is, all they really care about is that you report your income and you pay your tax. And if you do that, they're not going to bother you. Um, now some people will say, well, I don't have income. These are gifts, they're donations and all that. Um, the, the tax courts have gone beyond that. And that, that argument is, is not going to, to be bought. I'll tell you a funny story about that in the United States. Um, there was a guy who had a mistress 
uh, who was also a sex worker. And he became very fond of this mistress. And so he went to her and he said, um, I don't want you doing this stuff. I'm going to pay you to do basically to do nothing except just be, be there. And he gave her a monthly stipend. Uh, he sugared her. And he sugared, he sugared her. her. And she agreed she wasn't doing anything. Uh, and she didn't declare the money he gave her. But the tax court found out. And the tax court said that a payment for doing nothing is a payment for doing something because doing nothing is doing something and therefore it's taxable income. And so they assessed her I the mean, tax. I that is some mental gymnastics, just working in the favor of the revenue companies. But that's, it is. All right, fine. All it right. Is, yep. I can get the logic. So, and here's the problem where you're going to get into trouble. It is a common practice when someone is arrested by the local police they will, they will report the arrest to the revenue authorities, and then there'll be a check to see if you paid your taxes. And if Every, you, well, I don't get arrested ever, but like. Right, but some people can get arrested in what they do or around what they do, and so if that, you're in that situation, it, it's possible that the report will go to the revenue authorities, that they will check your tax status, and if you've not filed any taxes, that's the point that the revenue authorities will come after you. keep you you in jail. There you go. So we're not going to recommend that you skip paying taxes. No, we are not. (laughs) And there's some really important benefits that come with paying some taxes. First of all, you get access to government health insurance, and you have, we talked about the pension. We already get access to it over here. Okay. Yeah. Um, You also get access to retirement benefits. There we go. your, Your pension. And... Depending on how it's set up, you could get unemployment insurance if you can't work. Now, it's a lot, a lot of money, but it might pay the electric bill if you're not working. Um, Another important thing is you can get access to credit. If you want to make an investment like buying a a rental property or you want to buy a car and you want to borrow money, when you haven't filed your tax returns, you're going to get stuck in a cash-only market. There's a growing... um, network of of regulations and procedures now that's designed to put the spotlight on people who live in a cash-only world. And this is because they're going after drug dealers, human traffickers, and things like that. And uh, so all these different reporting requirements that banks and financial institutions have are designed to catch people and prevent people from living a cash-only lifestyle. Maybe to take it down to another level, um, and I believe this is true in both countries, U.S. and Canada, banks are required to report cash deposits over $10,000. Yeah, is that in a day or in a, in a month? In a day. In a day. But if the bank suspects that you have staged your deposit, meaning that you took a $10,000, let's say a $20,000 payment, and you made five deposits or four deposits of $5,000, if the bank suspects that, the bank clerk can still fill out a suspected transaction that report. all that's totaling to one payment? Y- yes. Then they'll group it up and report it that way, and then it becomes, the burden of proof becomes on you to prove that that wasn't a single transaction. Oof. Yeah. And then I guess yeah, we're talking about taxes, so we do want to talk about one more thing in Canada. If your client billings are more than $30,000, you're going to have HST, GST, PST, whatever you call it. It's the sales tax component for professional services. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that is a tax that you'll need to pay as well. The other thing I would say is that uh, you can't wait till the end of the year when you file your tax return to pay your taxes. You will have to pay a minimum amount every quarter. Okay, so I'm going to pay taxes on all the money I earn and not hide anything under the bed. Uh, 
which seems like a lot of money. Is there a way to reduce that number that I make before the tax rates applied? Well, certainly. The uh, government allows uh, tax deductions, and these are expenses that are ordinary and necessary. Um, those are terms that are in the law and are subject to court interpretation, but ordinary means it's one that is common and accepted in a trade or business. So like marketing. Yes. And necessary, again, is helpful or appropriate. And then uh, the last one uh, is reasonable. And uh, that is that the amount you're spending for that um, makes sense, uh, given the size of your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, now, there are some specific limitations um, to, to tax deductions. Um, and it's, you probably want to you know, talk to your accountant to get into more detail on this. But for example, clothing that can, that can be worn in ordinary public activities does not qualify for a tax deduction. Even talking about this, we can see all the different places that it's like an enormous gray area because it's not socially acceptable. Right. But, but we're th- trying to be like adhering to the laws and it's just very difficult. It is. And I think the important thing is that you, you know, you file and make a legitimate effort to, to get there. The reality is if there, if there's an audit and there's an adjustment, um, if it's $500 this way or that way, it's not the same thing as having an audit and finding out that you didn't report 100000 worth of income. Right, right. And, and now you've got to deal with that. And they may go back three years because once they open an audit and find out you haven't filed, uh, three years or six years can be opened up and looked at. And then you're going to get a tax bill for penalties, interest, and, uh, and the taxes. It, it'll be overwhelming for you to pay that. And it can be a real pain to keep track of all your expenses for cab fare and for, things like oh, that. Oh, yeah, of course. And, and so they're... There are tools that are being developed, iPhone apps and and Internet-based apps that are trying to make this simple for you. Um, The other thing I would say as people start thinking about all the deductions that they can take is to make a distinction between uh, expenses that are currently deductible and those that have to be amortized over a period of time. So I'm talking about large expenses, cars, computers, and things like that that have a useful Even your website. Possibly, yes, and possibly... And photos. And photos, yeah. Yeah. If you spend $20,000 on a photo shoot, you have to come up with an estimate of how many years that photo shoot will have value to your business as a marketing asset. how many years are you using it? Exactly. And you'll take that... So if it's five years and it was $20,000, you can take, you know, $4,000 a year for for the five years as a deduction because the IRS and and the Canadian agency will not allow you to deduct all that as a current expense. How do you keep track of your tax deductions? Oh, well, I just save the receipts and put them in a folder. I don't use any apps or anything. But now that, you know, I've got to calculate GST and like all these. And because that's monthly right now, I feel like I will maybe start using an app. I just don't know how much it's going to help me. And if I've got to spend the extra time to input the data, like I don't know if I'm realistically going to do it when I can just put it all in a folder. And then when I want to actually make a document, just do that that one day, because otherwise it's like time every day. Now, do you take the shoebox with all the receipts to your tax person, or do it's you... It's not a shoebox. I'm paperless. It's all in a document on my computer, and I guess someone could hack me and steal it. <laughs> Don't do that, folks. Take all your deductions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll still have it backed up, but there yeah. You go. Well, I was... Okay, so, but I'm thinking in terms of the, the your tax bill, uh, if your tax accountant has to go through every single receipt and categorize those and total them but up. But I, I put it like, per, like I organize it. Yeah, I just don't go. put it into like an app. But right. I, for people that want that organization, that's fine. But to me, it's like an extra step. So when you send, and so when you send in your information to your tax for account, each month, I do calculate you, it. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna have like each category of expense, right? And the monthly amount or the annual amount as a total. 
And that would be, I, as, a, as a tax return preparer, I would tell you that's, there are some risks you get in there and that the client might be deducting something that is not appropriate, but at the same time, it saves a lot well, of... Well, if you go over that there and ask the questions as it's happening, it should correct. happen. Correct. The, bringing a shoebox into the, to the account pretty much guarantees... It's going to be a virtual shoebox now, though. True, but it still takes a lot of time to go through it all does. the documents, yeah. and you're going to get charged for that. So if you can do some of the organization for your accountant, this is a little tip on how to save yeah, uh, tax preparation fees uh, is by being organized yourself. And then it's good to have an ongoing relationship with somebody. You can pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got this expense. Is it deductible? Should I put it in the file? What should I classify it as? Um, rather than having a casual relationship where come tax time, you run off to the, you know, the, the nearest tax preparation service and with your list of expenses and have them do the work. You're going to miss out on a lot of possible deductions, I feel like. I think and you're you not going to maybe get the right number even for what you're you doing. Would. I agree with you completely. And that brings up the question we've been kind of skirting around is should you do your own taxes or should you hire a pro? I feel like you should do your own taxes and then give it to a pro. Well, that's an excellent strategy because obviously for someone who's willing to dig into the details because obviously then you understand how the system works and how to organize your business going forward uh, to, to best handle your tax situation. Uh, in a generic sense, I would say um, is how, how simple or complex is your tax situation. And I feel like in this instance, it's always going to be somewhat complex. Because okay. there's just a lot to think about. There is, sure. But it could be way more complex if you owned rental properties, had children. Oh, absolutely. Traveled, whatever. Absolutely. Um, even if you work with a single accountant, it's, it's always good to um, have a second review uh, with somebody else. In a large firm, if you're working with a firm, we'll often do that where they'll trade off um, every couple of years a tax return gets looked at by a partner or by somebody else before it gets filed. Um, so going back to the question just from, from one of the listeners who might be saying, you know, should, should I do this or should I hire or should I not? I think the question is how much uh, money is involved. And um, if it's a lot of money, the risk of making a mistake could be much more costly. And the fees that you're going to pay are going to be relatively small compared to um, the peace of mind that you're going to get to know it's done right. And I'm going to make, uh, make you aware of a little secret in the industry you know, tax time is not the best time to connect with a tax pro. You know, I have a lot of clients that come in at tax time and they're bringing all these problems and we're on a Brent, dilemma. look at this. Just fix all of this. I need it by tomorrow. Exactly. I have time for your bullshit. Don't try to bill me for these hours. <laughs> exactly. Just need it next week. Well, and many times we can't bill you for the hours because we just don't have that many hours in the day. So no what shit. we do is we, we extend the return and file it in a later date um, after we've had the chance to do the work. If, if you really want to get a careful review of your situation, find somebody mid-year and sit down with them and begin to work on what the end of year is going to look like. And then those questions can be answered before there's the pressure to file all those tax returns. Um, I offer peace this, of mind alone. Absolutely. And I offer this service at no charge to my clients. So if you're one of my clients, then this would be something that we, you know, you'd have to remind me to do it, but, and, and you have to provide me the information, but if you want to call me up, say, hey, let's do this. I'll sit down and run the numbers and we can figure out where we are. Um, that will also affect your tax withholding. If you've had a large increase in your income this year because your business is good, you maybe should be withholding more because if you don't withhold enough taxes, there will be a penalty at the end of the year for under withholding as well. Yeah. So um, 
Given the stigma of sex work, how did you feel about disclosing your income and paying your taxes, Sienna? Yeah, I definitely have lost sleep over it quite a bit because I'm not like I'm not ready to be labeled a sex worker when I do my tax return. I think a big part of it is not knowing how I'm supposed to file these returns with the label of getting paid for my time as a professional. And so I've just been avoiding it a lot and just, yeah, feeling bad because I'm not ready to be labeled as just that in government records for the rest of my life. And there's no real resources out there to kind of find out on your own how you're supposed to be doing this. And so I think that a lot of people are just avoiding it, not because they don't want to pay their taxes, but because they have no idea what to do. Okay. Uh, that's a that's a great con- uh, great concern. Some people um, feel like they're bringing something to the government's attention that's not appropriate. And I think the the one point to remember um, is that providing companionship per se is not illegal in Canada or the United States. It's the selling of sex for money that creates the problem. Mm-hmm. And so, depending on how you present yourself to the world in your business. Um, you could be presented in a completely legal manner and you can hold your head high and report without any particular concern. There shouldn't be anything um, uncomfortable. Um, That's not always the case, but just throwing that out there. Back to taxes, um, when you report your revenue, you have to report the kind of business that you're in. And there's all these codes uh, in the tax system. And in the United States, there's a code 711510, which is labeled Independent Artists, Writers, and Performers. And there's also a code 713900, which is other amusement and recreational services. Or there's also, uh, I think in Canada, well, in the United States, it's 812990. It's all other personal services. And then in Canada, I believe they have one code. It's 812900. And these are probably the codes that you would want to look at. Uh, if you want to be labeled as closest to being a companion. Right. Well, and I think you do have some obligation um, to get into the ballpark, you know, to label yourself as candy store sales when you're actually providing personal services. So uh, one of the things we had talked about earlier, too, is that if, you're, uh, if your income is over $100,000, your tax bill is going to get to be relatively large because the percent of tax that you pay, as well as the dollar value, goes up as your income goes up. And so as you look at some of those things, it becomes easier to justify, you know, forming a corporation and putting yourself on salary. And uh, that's probably the uh, a significant uh, opportunity um, that those in the higher uh, uh, earning brackets um, can take advantage of. Yeah. So the one drawback to that is that the way it works is you're going to report a portion of your income. Previously, you're reporting... Uh, all your income as earned income. Now you're going to report a portion of your income as wages on a T4 or a, a W-2, um, and then the rest of your income is going to come through the corporation as corporate earnings, okay. which is taxed. At, and we said earlier that uh, corporate earnings are taxed at a lower tax rate right. than earned income. So that's where the savings is going to be. Now you're also reporting a lower income, uh, earned income, than you would under the other system. And so the the, the drawback here is that you're pension when you get down to retirement will be reduced um, because your income was not as high. Right. Now, again, I've run the models on the U.S. system, and for most people, many people, um, you're going to pay into the system more than you're going to get back out. So it's not a good investment. So reducing um, the amount of tax is actually to your benefit. Despite the lower amount you'll get later. Yeah, because you would 
if you had the option, you would totally opt out. To be like, what's in your best interest is to totally opt out, and then you have to be totally responsible for your own retirement plan. But you can invest it better than the government can invest. And it. if you can figure all this out, you should be golden for deciding your own retirement plan because you've made it this far. There you go. Setting up a company and doing payroll sounds like a lot of work. What can a busy person do to make this easier? Well, you are correct. It is a lot of work uh, when you have your own company because you have payroll and you have additional accounting um, burden. And then you have uh, tax paying for um, both the corporate entity and your personal um, taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and so we offer a service like uh, we talked about uh, for $399 a month. And that includes setting up your company on QuickBooks. And we post your activity each month for revenue expenses. And we're available 24-7 for telephone consults. And we fire, file all the tax reports that are required. Um, and uh, we also have that service for individuals who do not have uh, a, a corporation. And that fee is $249. That honestly, like for the peace of mind and knowing everything has been filed and submitted properly is uh, completely worth it to me. <laughs> So listeners who want more information about that can contact our website, escortcpa.com. And if you reference this podcast, your 12th month of services will be free the oh first year. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm helping people do their taxes. There you go. Um, one thing we didn't also talk about is, is that touring produces multi-jurisdiction income. So, for mm, example, yeah. if, you, if you're in Ontario and then you move to Calgary and then you go out to Vancouver and, uh, or if we're in America, if you cross state lines, then you will... Earn foreign income. There you go, yes. And uh, that's really a challenge because sometimes the complexity of dealing with multiple jurisdictions, uh, the cost of doing that is not justified by the amount of money that's coming in. But those are things we have to look at individually on each, in each circumstance. Right. And just to be aware of when you tour that there is that additional complexity that will have to be considered. So uh, did you do your own taxes and do you do your own financial planning or did you hire that out? And mm. Why did you choose that path? Sarah? I do not do my own taxes. I organize them, like I said, but... Uh I mean, I tried to, and I did part of it, but I just, I, I just want to make sure it's done properly, and I know I can't. So, okay, would much rather have the peace of mind of paying someone that's professional personally. Okay. How did you find a professional? That's kind of, I think, a big topic for this podcast. Well, I started with a friend, and then I somehow found you. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. For yeah, that I guess it just got lucky. There you go. And uh, have you been happy with the help you've gotten so far? Oh, so happy. There you go. <laughs> okay. I think this is a testament to that. So before this podcast, you mentioned you'd share some special information uh, that addresses some of the unique needs of this industry. Uh, what do you think those are? Well, I think the, uh, the fact that the industry has a high reliance on cash right. uh, creates a lot of challenges. Um, I think that uh, you know, keeping cash uh, in your residence is not a good idea. Not advisable. No, and keeping uh, cash in a safety deposit box has its risks as well. Um, there's a, a number of lawsuits uh, across the country uh, regarding banks that did not uh, fulfill that uh, custodial responsibility properly. And there is, unless you carry some type of insurance on that security deposit box and the contents, the, the bank has no liability uh, for it. That's horrifying. And in the event of certain legal 
things happening, it is possible that that safety deposit box would be confiscated or sealed, and so then this money that you maybe have for an emergency would not be available to you, and that could be particularly traumatic um, if you're planning to have that available to you. So I, I don't think those are really good options. Um, I do think that there are ways to reduce the amount of cash that you see in your business um, and, and to bring it into the banking system, I think, is advantageous as early as possible. Yeah. Um, just don't be scared of it. Just figure right. out how to work it out. Yep. Consultant professional. Yep. And uh, sometimes you can accept gift cards. That works for some people. I mean, yeah. everybody has their own thing. It's but still it, considered income, and that's just a form of getting it. Sure. But it's not a, it, but what we're talking about, yeah, it's income, but we're, we're, we're basically saying you're trying to minimize the amount of cash that you have to right. handle but, because it's really not safe for you to have it. So, yeah. Um, then a cryptocurrency has been going on for a few years. Yeah. Do you advocate for that? Well, I you, think you I, an investment in Bitcoin or blockchains. Are well, uh, yeah, but I don't, uh, I don't advocate for investing in cryptocurrency because I think the markets are overly hyped and, and the values could, could really fluctuate a lot. But uh, cryptocurrency can be a good way at the at present time uh, to, main, to maintain some degree of anonymity um, to the funds. And as the markets are growing, there's more and more companies that are willing to accept cryptocurrency. So you could accept cryptocurrency and make a payment for something. Now, you're still going to report all that for taxes. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm just saying it, it uh, avoids the, you know, keeps the amount of cash that you're having to handle um, to a minimum. Right. You will have to deal with a bank when you want to convert your cryptocurrency to hard cash. And those we talked about those rules earlier. Transactions over 10000 are reported. Well, cryptocurrency is also just good for remaining anonymous and accepting foreign payments as well. So it, it currently is. Although I understand that uh, the Canadian Revenue, Revenue, Revenue Agency is, is, is requesting um, more detailed information about people who are using it. So that's going to be, um, it's been better than it was and it's going to be worse than it is. So, but let me do bring out from a tax perspective, there is a concern with cryptocurrency. Both tax, or, uh, on both sides of the border, tax uh, authorities consider cryptocurrency to be an investment. It's not a currency. So let's say, for example, you accept uh, 200 crypto coins uh, in lieu of a $500 fee uh, for a booking. And so you get the coins into your crypt digital wallet and you hold them there for a while. And let's say that when you go to cash them out, those crypto coins are now worth $600 instead of $500. So on your tax return, you have to record the original $500, which is what you were charging when you received the crypto coins, as ordinary earned income. And then the $100 will be a capital gain. And that'll be on a different part of your tax return and subject potentially to a different level of taxation. So it does uh, create a little more complexity. And uh, the government is stepping up enforcement of this particular requirement, I believe, on both sides of the border. I'm sure there's a lot to uh, make money on there, so I get that. <laughs> yep. Uh, oof, what can be done today? I mean, what should people expect to be able to do right now? Well, I think one of the one of the important steps you can do is do your banking through a corporate entity rather than personally. Um, I think that helps uh, maintain a little bit of anonymity, and I think it also uh, allows for uh, potentially uh, greater transactions um, to be to be processed through. Uh, without raising eyebrows. Um, we talked, as you, as you run your business through a corporate entity, we talked about the tax savings there. Uh, we talked about uh, getting credit. Uh, so when you apply 
for credit to a bank, you have to give a T4. If you're an employee, you give a T4 or a W-2. And if you're self-employed, you're going to have to release your entire tax return. And your entire tax return has your revenue codes on it and has um, other things on there that you might really not want the bank to know about um, because banks are not at always friendly to sex workers. Right, as we know very well. Yes. So with regards to, you know, and being employed in your own corporation, I have a funny story about this oh. because I was employed uh, by my own corporation for many years. And when I exited that business and I wanted to get a, a civilian job, I, I put my job title and salary and name of the corporation on my resume and on the application and I sent it out. Um, the corporate phone number was my office phone. And so when a personnel department of a company that wanted to hire me did the reference check, they called my office. I was able to confirm my years of employment. I confirmed my salary. Oh, good recommendation And I the gave boss, myself hey? a great reference, <laughs> yes, so I got the job. So, and, and we think about that. If you're employed by a company, that could make your exit strategy from this industry much easier to execute since you'll have a verifiable work record that can go on a resume, and it's a real corporation, and your job description is what you decided that you did. Full-time boss lady there to you the go. max. There you go. Can vouch for yourself and all. Um, okay, so step five then, since we just covered step four. Okay, so step five is assessing risks that might affect achieving your, your goals and figure out how to mitigate them. And most people, when they think about risks that can happen, it's, you know, health, disability, disability. Uh, premature death, those kind of things, and they buy insurance uh, to protect them. And we're not going to get into all the details of insurance, but it's something that you should look at, um, especially if you have family you're supporting, how are they going to be taken care of? Just uh, identify your risks. Be, yes. be ahead of the game. Yes. And uh, then, yeah, just the last step we've got left. There you go. Planning for the unthinkable. Uh, the unthinkable can happen, so you want to plan for emergencies and have a plan uh, particularly death or disability. And the worst one, I think, is disability since um, you're alive, but you're not able to access your financial resources. Uh, emergencies uh, typically result in a loss of income and typically result in higher expenses. Um, financial experts are generally recommending that you maintain at least six to eight months of income in a readily accessible cash form um, that you can use to pay your true emergencies. And by that I mean it's stuff that's not expected to happen. Like I would say car repairs, even though it's infrequent, is expected to happen if you own a car, so you wouldn't really wanna uh, use that fund for car repairs. And I would say that you should budget every month for car repairs, maybe not what a car repair would cost, but 10 or 15 or $20. Or just live car free like me. There you go. <laughs> well, one, and one suggestion that I make to my clients is, why don't you pay like 10 cents a mile or 15 cents a mile into a fund and just hold the money there. And that money's either for repairs or for a new vehicle. Because that way- I also feel like you should be leasing. Like no one should buy a vehicle anymore. Well, that is an option that, that can be looked at. Yep. The second you buy a car, it goes down like five to 10 grand. It does. It does. Yep. So the other thing we want to talk about is uh, more people now have digital um, resources like digital, like passwords and online accounts and things. And uh, in the old days, you know, it used to be like um, the checking account and all the bank accounts were in the filing cabinet in the office. Today, if you were to die or be disabled, uh, there's no record anywhere physically existing in your property right where what assets you have and where those are. So I think it's important if you have somebody who you trust to share that information with and 
that they can step in in the event that you're not able to do the things that you need to do. I didn't even consider that an emergency, but it most definitely is. Right. And we talked about safety deposit boxes. I don't like them because I think that unreliable. Uh, they, they're unreliable. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I, had, I hadn't even thought about that with the safety deposit boxes. Obviously, I don't know what banks are liable for. So. <clears throat> have you discussed uh, your financial goals with anyone else? And have you given anyone else, anyone else a role in planning for your disabilities, Sienna? Hmm, well, I've recently started telling you, and I have not at all planned for my disability or illness. But uh, I think I'm just living in the naivete of my youth still. Uh, I think what is it? The line is when you're in your 20s, you think you live forever, and when you're like in your 50s, you think you're gonna die tomorrow. Every there you day. go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so now that we've kind of gone through all these steps. Um, what uh, things are you doing right, and what things do you think could be improved? I think I'm doing well with not doing any frivolous spending, but uh, yeah, definitely need to start investing. I think I've done a good job with uh, keeping track of all the uh, expenses. It's hard to get receipts, as a lot of you know, from some of the advertising platforms, uh, but do your best. And if they don't give them to you, just send them emails and they're obligated to give you a receipt for what you paid for. Try to get receipts for any photos you've got done. Yeah, just improve, improve investing and actually like not letting this money devalue every day. There you go. Good, good plans there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, we covered a lot. I hope that everyone's still listening. You haven't tuned out just yet. Uh, obviously, if you have more questions, please feel free to get in touch with him. Very reliable, meticulous man. Oh, well, I always like to end each episode with some fun questions. So now that you've uh, been exposed to this industry, what do you uh, like or dislike most about it? I don't like the uh, secrecy and mistrust. Me and neither. Well, I understand the reason for it. Um, it. It does make it difficult to work. And uh, yeah. the, the corollary, though, is that I uh, really uh, enjoy working with some of the most caring, open-minded people in the world. I mean, yeah, we are all just trying to work. And when you just put that many those barriers there, I don't really know because these people are still working this way it's just making it tougher mm -hmm. what do you think is uh the most important reason we need to remove that stigma associated with sex work and escorting well, i think it's important to make the work safer for workers and i think also as that stigma is reduced um, there's a number of non-clients who could benefit from services that would find it more easy to access those services so the market should should grow it's a very lucrative industry. I think a lot of people are trying to make money off of sex workers while still disavowing them. Like the marketing agencies, the website platforms, not you, but, you know, yeah. legalities, accountants, whatever. Might sure. as well make it safer and more accessible for people because it will be lucrative for other people at the end of the day. Do you think if uh, society was more okay with you working with sex workers, you'd be more okay telling people absolutely i would talk about the wonderful people i work with all day long okay do you think that is a little bit of a fantasy i think that you know a lot of companies don't want to be associated with sex work and sex workers financial institutions have been known to shut people out of their accounts or cancel them out them as sex workers i think most of the cases that this has happened i've heard of it being in the states but i'm sure it's happened here as well do you think that being a sex worker do you, will be seen as uh, acceptable or businesses will start to say that they are sex worker friendly in the future. Do you think that we'll see more companies leading and advocating for their acceptance for working with them in different capacities? Or am I purely living in my own fantasy land? 
well, I like your fantasy and I share for your desire to see it become a reality. <laughs> but uh, what I've noticed, it seems like, you know, we've had a number of years of liberalization in many countries around the world. And it seems like we're kind of in a, in a, in a situation right now where there's a, a growing level of conservatism and trying to kind of get back to some uh, more regulated. There's a weird overly progressive, overly <laughs> conservative push going on here there is and what we're finding is the liberals are getting more liberal and the conservatives are getting more conservative and it kind of brings up you know people are people and i don't think that that uh no matter who's in power and how the process goes that it's all going to just disappear overnight you know we often associate uh, the victorian era with social with sexual conservatism and that was really true in the public forums you know that there was a lot of protocols and processes uh, for the sexes that they had to deal with um but uh, remembering that, you know, the, in, in the history, uh, the wealthy have always essentially married for status and then had relationships um, that met their needs outside of the uh, right, of their marriage. Yeah. Um, there was a book I saw that, that uh, had, uh, you know, photographs and diagrams of Victorian mansions in, in England, and these mansions had all these little back passageways, secret passageways that connected all the different bedrooms. I think I've seen something like that too. Yeah. So what we're saying is in the Victorian culture, here we had the most, you know, very conservative culture in public. And yet at the same time, we had this um, built into the architecture, which it wasn't just a casual thought. This was something that was you ingrained know, into the yeah, secret lifestyle. Yeah. Even so we're going to, yeah. So we're going to, I think uh, that's probably what we're going to be looking at for the foreseeable future uh, until the conservative, um, mentality we can expect property developers to be building secret tunnels <laughs> <laughs> i don't think that'll happen but um, no need anymore we can just get them in the back that's right oh there you god go. oh what is your current favorite book or one you always recommend to people well i'm currently reading the 2019 income tax guide oh my god <laughs> yes it's an awesome read really you would well it might be a little dry and technical <laughs> for some people but seriously um if listeners want to understand more about taxes, there's a really good book, and it was written by a practicing mistress, and it's called The Tax Dom's Guide for Sex Workers. You can get it on Amazon, and uh, she's writing from a U.S. perspective, but a lot of what she says, especially the advice about setting up your record keeping and all those kind of things, applies on either side of the border. It's very cool. Yeah. So, And then there's an, uh, Amanda Brooks is a Dallas-based escort. And she's written a series of books on escorting that can take anyone from ignorant to professional in a few hours. And I've read her uh, 101 book, the very basic book, and it truly covers everything. And I mean everything. What, uh, what year was this published? Oh, my. I don't know. But it was, was it like a decade ago or more recently? I think it was more recent. Okay. Um, I would say in the last five or six years. I think okay. the book may be out of print, but you can still get copies on Oh, Amazon. everyone's going to be rushing it's to the, it now. Yeah, the Internet, Internet Escorts Handbook, and uh, it, it provides a very uh, in-depth overview of the well, industry. I'll definitely have to do that before I air this so that I get one of the last copies. There you go. Oh, I know. Next question. Which song is your anthem? So um, I like the song The Stranger by Billy Joel. <laughs> To me, the song is really... I like Billy Joel, too. Yeah, and to me, the song is about the kinky fetish side of our lives. Is that what it's about? I think it is. And, you know... I, if guess, you, I guess, yeah. Yeah, and we're afraid to explore this, especially to involve others, because it makes us feel so vulnerable. And if you look at the lyrics, the song is really saying it's like, it's okay, take out, make the steps, and take the risk. And Except with your taxes. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, we're talking <laughs> kinks and fetish here. We're not talking. I know. I'm the, just making fun. Yeah. But um, every time I hear the song, I, I'm kind of reminded of my own kind of bucket list of, of kinks that I want to explore and learn more about my own sexuality. Good for you. I'm so proud so, that you came on as a professional, but still admitted to your human side. Yeah. You're and so I, relatable. Thank you. And I, <laughs> I just want to get to know the stranger better because he isn't always evil. Well, it's and been he oppressed isn't always for, wrong. He's been oppressed for so long. Like, why yeah. wouldn't you want to explore it? Exactly. Okay. So who do you have the biggest companion crush on at the moment? You know, um, I, I've um, followed uh, Maggie McNeil. Right. And she has a really exhaustive website that just pretty much has it is a it's library in its own yeah and she has been such an advocate for the industry she just starred in the film the war on whores she made it yeah yeah and and i just you know i think she's a wonderful spokesperson for the industry and uh i'm i'm very impressed with her as am i she has a lot of great analogies and mm-hmm. like, I don't know if it's a metaphor, but great examples. And she's read up on all the literature. Yep. And then there's you, Sienna. You know, you're okay, putting out this yes, incredible yes. podcast and there's so much to admire about you. So um, I guess those would be the come the ones that come to mind right now. Oh, I thank you. Oh, well, thank you for sharing so much today. I oh, really so appreciate welcome. it. And I will do my best to stay on top of everything we talked about. Uh, is there anything else you want to say to all the escorts out there? Well, you're all really amazing. Thanks for being who you are and peace and blessings to each of you. Thank you. And have a nice day, everybody. All right. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and was hopefully able to take something away. I have attached Escort CPA's website and Twitter handle in the show notes in case you'd like to get in touch. I can't wait to have other professionals also aligning themselves with sex workers on in future episodes. Wishing everyone a lovely start to their week and stay curious.